everyone, and thank you for joining into Collect Calls. This podcast is curated by students at Carleton University, working alongside with the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, CPEP, in Ottawa, Canada. Before starting the podcast, we would like to first acknowledge the land on which we recorded this podcast and on which Carleton University is situated is the traditional, unceded, and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Nation. The following episode is an excerpt from an interview where we invited formerly incarcerated individuals and their families to speak on their experiences with the criminal justice system. Our goal in mind was to give these individuals a chance to speak for themselves, to voice their opinions on a system that has impacted their lives so greatly, rather than allowing for the same system to continue to speak for them. In further acknowledgement, we also want to recognize the overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous people in jails and prisons across Canada, one of the many lasting impacts of colonialism. We'd like to inform that the following podcast will be discussing sensitive topics and some vulgar language may be used. We caution listeners to be advised. If any of the following subjects trigger you, there are links in the description for counseling resources. Thank you. you give us a little bit of background about you guys and about uh, your family member that has experience being incarcerated? Uh, okay, well, I mean, uh, Ian was incarcerated and... Uh, she wants um, information on us first. Yeah, well, I know. I mean, I don't know what to say. Go ahead. And um, do you want to... Do we, our names, Anne and Bernard Harrington. We had four children, two boys and two girls, and Ian was the second eldest. Okay. And um, how was Ian when he was a kid? Um, did he? Did you guys have any idea that he would be um, so troublesome for you guys in the, in the early age? No, no. Ian was always very, very quiet. Never. Uh, he never mixed um, very well until he went into. What do we never mix? He never mixed with other kids very well. He was he was a bit of a loner until he met up with Carrie Oliver and them. Oh yeah. Until he went into um I'd say until maybe grade eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grade eight. I think that's when he started getting into trouble in grade eight. Grade well, eight he, grade he always eight. got on we lived in mainly in uh, the country and uh, the four of the kids, he always got on great and uh, he was always quiet and happy and everything, you know, intelligent yeah. and yeah, he was not a regular fella, but, you know, maybe a bit quieter. Uh, but he, uh, he always got on good and uh, until he started getting into trouble when he was a teenager. Yeah. Uh, what sort of trouble did he get into when he was younger? Like, what, what was it starting out as? Do you guys remember anything? Um, what was the first one? Um, oh, he he broke into, um, him and another fella broke into school that he went in Hagersville. And they broke up the teacher's guitar because they didn't like the teacher. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, the teacher used was also Stephanie's teacher. And he was always comparing Ian to Stephanie. And Stephanie was an overachiever. 
<laughs> so he probably- and I think I think and I think he was like that to other kids in the class as well. So I think that's why they they went in. They broke into the gym. I think it wasn't. He was damage in there. Having the boy, he was having the boys as teacher. So uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, they they was having another fellow broke into the school, and I don't know what. There was more than one. Thirteen or fourteen. But he took the blame for the whole thing when actually the guy that was picked for valid Victorian that year was one of the main ones with Ian, and Ian took the blame for it all. Yeah. Do you think that's like um evidence of his character? How like how nice he is. Oh like, yeah. How willing he is to. Yeah, he just didn't. Definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. He he always kind of um was the first one to say you know blame me or whatever it was or take the fall for whatever it is and he didn't worry about that. Kind of uh, I say it was in his character always. And how did he end up when he was older? What kind of person did he become? Um after prison, I suppose. After prison? Yeah, just, or just in general. Like when yeah, he, he, well, he was always, he was always quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't, didn't talk very much about feelings or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he never really talked too much about, about prison, just, you know, he'd say the odd thing now and now and again, when he was in um, there, we when we used to phone him, sometimes I would spend like a couple of hours on the phone with him, not his last since, like since before that. And, you know, he'd talk about what he wanted to do when he got out and he wanted to straighten out and do this and everything, but he'd get out then and he'd last maybe for, usually lasted around a couple of years of staying out of trouble and then he'd be back into stuff again. Mm. Yeah, until he got out the last time and then he basically built his life then and turned around and you know, went into the the martial arts and became a teacher, you know, teaching the kids and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, you know, the last time he was out, when he was 33 that time, he was uh, he stayed out and uh, he did really good. He really made a big turn on his life, I think. Maybe he just matured a lot more or something. He just out, outlasted or just got rid of that life, the old... Well, he just said he never wanted to go back in again. So when he set his mind to something, he could actually do it. Because I remember he was a heavy smoker at one time, and he just set his mind to it. I'm not smoking anymore. He getting up with a cough, and he just quit the next day. So if he really set his mind to something, he could, he could do it. And he but did. With the drugs, are, with the drugs are concerned, now they they took control of him. Yeah, in that aspect, do you want to talk about that? Um, like how long was he struggling with an addiction and how much of an impact do you think that had on his life and his, his criminal behavior? I think it had a huge impact on his life. Um, he started at a young age. I remember seeing him um, at the Jarvis Corn Fest one time and he looked like he was out of it. It could have been pot, or I, I don't know. Um, but I think he started taking stuff at a young age, maybe in his early teens. Mm. Yeah, and then, I mean, he wrote this letter one time and saying he had been off them when he was inside for, what, two years or something? Two and a half years. Two and a half years, and I intend on staying off them and staying clean. And, you know, I think he did have that, um, he did really want to do that when he got out. He did last, for, I, I'm not sure when he got back on drugs, to be quite honest. I, I think it's when he went to Calgary and we went, we came here, I think, I think he might have gone back on them because I think he was lonely and depressed. Yeah, I when guess he lived in Calgary for those few months. Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no telling. There's no obvious signs to family members, and like, what, like, we'll never, like, 
we don't know we're not we don't do drugs so we don't know what when people go on them or why people need them so it's not like that's not something yeah. about yourself yeah. or anything well, I mean, he was doing really good either way. You know, even he told us he was doing the drugs when, um, mm-hmm. when, because uh, we lived in the radio, obviously, then he was in Victoria and he phoned us up and he said, like, you know, and we said, how, you know, how bad is he? He said, well, I do it once a week. And we said, oh, well, you know, that's good. And, you know, you're cutting back. And he said, he feels terrible doing them. He feels terrible the next day. But the thing is that uh, he just uh, he just got a hold of it. But I mean, the, when the pandemic came along then, um, it really shut him out because he had his gym every night. Friday night or Saturday night, it was his down night. He would do um, do the drugs on the Friday or Saturday night. It was like, I suppose anybody working during the week, they just kind of have a down, you know, uh, a night, whatever. So, uh, but anyway, when the pandemic came along then, I think he got more involved and there was more drugs and it was almost every night, I'd say. Mm. Um, so, uh, how do you yeah. think, like, as long as he, oh, no, go ahead. No, 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 you guys go, go ahead. I just said, as long as, as long as Ian could keep himself busy, then he, he was fine. Mm-hmm. But he just, just couldn't stand sitting around and, and doing nothing. He always liked to be busy. He's so, always doing stuff. Even when he lived with us, he was always doing stuff. So when I put down a bathroom floor, a new bathroom floor, when we were in their modular home, and you know he was always doing different things. He liked keeping busy. He was good at everything. That's for sure. He was very, very handy. Yeah, I mean he did a lot of work for Stephanie's friends. You know he had the girl move one time, and he put all electrical outlets in her um in her place, and like he was very, very. And I used to tell him that even as a young kid, I say, you know, you're very, very smart. You just don't realize how smart you are. Yeah, and I, he would just kind of shrug it off. He probably just thought yeah. of it like, "I'm not getting straight A's. I, I'm sure I can build stuff, but I'm not getting straight A's like everybody else." I mean, what's going on? But well, he could have if he put his mind to it. Believe me, he could have. But he was—he was just never one for school. Never liked school. Yeah. Even as a young kid, he never liked school. I don't like the institution part of school either, the rules and everything. Yeah, well, it was too, yeah, yeah. He did well in institutions after that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, um, you guys were talking a little bit about the pandemic. Um, how do you think the pandemic, like, affected Ian? Well, on different steps, yeah. Definitely the pandemic, me, was him being shut off from everybody. He didn't see Stephanie on a regular basis because she was pregnant and she was... And Ryan has health issues, so he didn't see her as often like before. I think he would kind of drop in there every other night or whatever on his way back from work or whatever. But so he was a bit cut off from Stephanie in that sense. And then when the gym closed, he was cut off from all his friends there and all his activities. I mean, he used to leave Mike and Kerry away on weekends and he'd mind the gym for them. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it, it um, as well as being lonely and no other outlets out there since everything was closed, he used to. He used to do a lot of walking on the trails and then the trails used to walk and they shut, they closed all them off. So really there wasn't a lot for him to do. And, and then with the drugs, because of the pan- pandemic, the drugs, um, weren't, the drugs weren't coming in. So what they were selling on, on the streets, wherever you used to buy them, were just laced with fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So I think in two respects, like the the border border closures, the drugs not coming, proper drugs not coming through. The drugs became more dangerous, and and I think he always thought, 
he always thought he was indispensable that, you know, I know what I'm doing. And because um, Stephanie did talk to him about this about defense now. And um, I know what I'm doing and I know how much you should take and all this kind of stuff. And, um, well, obviously, um, that's not what happened. Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, he was he was definitely, uh, you know, by himself at night time and uh, probably nothing to do. And, you know, so, yeah, yeah it definitely led, it was part of the led way. Led more use, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk, you guys are completely right about, like, the borders and everything and about how, um, like, that affects like the drug market and that leads to more like because even like he wasn't even the the only person in bc that month to overdose either on fentanyl it was like there was like 700 or something like that or 170 or something i can't remember the number but on that month yeah 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 a lot of people and and just the the evidence that like right a month after the pandemic happens and then all of these people like all of these loved ones are like passing away it's obviously clear that like there is a correlation so you guys are right i liked how you brought up the the drug toxicity levels and how that like the borders closing and the pandemic plays a part in all of that too because that's good to yeah 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 um do you want to talk about his experience being incarcerated how long was ian in jail for or, like how many times has he been to jail if you guys know he was an out from the time. Well, I mean, the group homes when he was like 14 until he was 33. Basically, I said like 20 yeah, years. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was in, 20, in 20 years and, then, 20 and, years and, then, and an out. And as I said, when he would do one stint, and then he, he always seemed to last a couple of years, and then it was like someone went off and his brain had gone nuts again. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, the last one, I think he was eight, it was eight years. So that was the, long, the longest stint I think he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, then like I said, when he got old, he just said he'd never gone back, and he was clean when he got old. He was really good and he was, yeah. fresh and everything else looking. And uh, shame. yeah, so uh, uh, I know. I like I said, I told, I told you before, we never really pushed him to talk about how it was inside, and but we always stayed in touch with him. No matter we lived in Ireland, and he was over in Canada in different jails, and we always phoned. And, uh, you know, so we always talk to him at least once a week and, you know, see how he's doing, wrote letters. We got letters here from him and, 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 and you got all the letters you wrote to him. You kept yeah. them all, right? I didn't, I didn't get them. Stephanie must have them. Yeah, she has them. Yeah, but yeah. we have them. And, uh, you know, so we always get in touch and we made sure that we were there for him when he got out. Like when we, we moved to, back to Canada to Victoria to give him a new life, to give him a new staff because we had to get him away from his old place, Hamilton, where he lived, and that's where most of the trouble, all the trouble started back mm-hmm. there. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. and he started a new life, got a job, you know, and all that stuff. So he was doing really good, really good. Um, yeah. How has having a family member like involved in the criminal justice system affected your life, and um, do you think? Like, how has this experience shaped your view or opinion of the justice system? Like, what's what's your opinion of the justice system now that you've gone through this experience with Ian? Well, it, it definitely it definitely um, changed our lives. I mean, I definitely think that with all Ian's problems and troubles over the year, he always seemed to take precedent precedent over everything else. He was, I, I think, maybe sometimes maybe the other kids thought. Um, 
you know, that it was all about him a lot of the times, which it was, because it was a very hard thing to deal with, trying mm-hmm. to, you know, get him to straighten out and everything, and no, nothing we did seem to work. We moved from the country back into the city, hoping we'd get, a, get away from the crowds, and that would work, but he just found the same crowd with different faces. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of the reasons we moved in from um, where we lived that time, because it was we figured it was too far over the country, and, you know, but... It didn't work. It just he's got he got a taste for that kind of life. I don't think, and he liked the excitement of it. And I don't think he could. Um, he didn't really want to stop. We were saying though, the uh, when you know because he was in now so long, he missed all those years, say the twenty years on and off. That you know, it's like anybody going going for their teens to adulthood. Uh, they learn how to open up a bank account, get a driver's license, deal with people, just. You know, and he couldn't do any of that when he got out. And uh, so, uh, I don't know, I mean, whatever way it could be taught that would help him when they do get out on the streets, that they can, uh, uh, you know, obviously the justice, if they just put him in jail and they don't do anything for him. They just put him in jail and out on the street. And, and if, you, if you don't have a family behind you when you get out, I think you're screwed. You're back into the, you're just going back in. Well, they do, yeah, they don't have life skills, especially people like Ian who was in and out so much. They don't have any life skills when they get out. Mm-hmm. So I think the justice system, besides just throwing them in jail, I mean, they, if they do things wrong, obviously they have to be put away. But they need to teach them different life skills when they're in there, especially, you know, maybe a year before they're getting out or something. Teach them how to get on with it, especially if they've been in, like, he was in eight years at last stint. And, um... It was tough for him when he got out. I mean, he didn't know very too much about computers, did he? Because no, computers, uh, cell phones. I mean, when he was going around, he had a pager. Mm-hmm. You know, that was but uh, cell phones. I mean, but well, he picked them up pretty quick, that's for sure. But um, you know, they just don't teach them life skills. I mean, if they want, if they want these people, when they get out to rehabilitate, they need to teach them skills in order to help them rehabilitate when they get out, especially if they've got nobody to help them out on the outside. Ian was lucky we were always there for him, but there are a lot of other people out there that there's no one there for them, and, and their parents, a lot of the parents don't want to have anything to do with these people. And even when they get out, they have a half time going straight because the cops still harass them. Like Ian needs to get harassed by the same cop in Langford in Victoria, uh, twice and the second time it was like he just didn't turn the signal on to turn the corner and he, this truck was falling for about 10 minutes and he knew the truck was falling him and next was about five cops cars pulled him over all boxed him in because he didn't turn the signal because, he, because of his background uh, and uh, you know like I said we, we uh, filed a police complaint with the RCMP after he passed away and we got a note uh, with an apologise to us and stuff uh, but the thing is that they just pick on the, you know, the, the, the cops think they're crooks, they'll always be crooks all their life, and they don't give them a chance. They don't give them a chance. They just keep picking on them. And it's hard for them to get a job with their record, and it's it's just really hard for, for people that, are, that have been incarcerated to straighten their life out. Society doesn't give them a chance to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I was going to ask one of the questions is, do you, do you think the system allows people who have been incarcerated to have a fresh start once they've been released or do you think it, it sets people up for failure and you guys pretty much covered that like they really they target you after you get out they don't give you a fresh start they they view you as that even after you you've gotten your sentence 
handed to you. And even yeah, yeah, you've done your time. You know, they say, do your time, you pay, you pay for the crime or whatever. Well, you know what? It never goes away. And it's the same with getting a job. But, like, definitely the police, they will, they, you're a target. You're, you're just, you know, they, like I said, because he, he didn't signal the town of corner, uh, the man was just looking for an excuse just to pull him over. Yeah, he was. And, yeah. and they had about four, like they said, he in college, he was laughing. He said, the, the whole, all these cops kept him everywhere and, and boxed him in. So he didn't turn a bloody corner and they, they thought he was going to, like, what do you think? He was going to shoot somebody or some bloody thing? There was no, no one on the street. There was no other cars around. Like, the two times he was pulled over, he said there was no other cars there. And the same cop gave him a ticket for uh, turning the corner, turning on the yellow lights and not signal. And, he, gave and two, he couldn't find his license. And they gave him two tickets that day. And then the same cop followed him, you know, in the, in the black truck. And then after he was passed away, another woman was harassing us about his car, getting his car moved from our CMP. Mm. And, uh, oh, yeah, so anyway, we filed a complaint with this, the citizen board and the RCMP. We got a letter from the RCMP. But the thing is that, you know, it goes back to harassment. They just... They're targeted, and that's it. Uh, they have no chance, really, when they get out. In your opinion, how do you think the system could be improved to help people reintegrate into society after they've been incarcerated? Like, should prisons teach them life skills, or what, what do you think they need to help people? Yeah, well, life skills, and, uh, and maybe have a place uh, that they can go to, maybe. Uh, maybe I know it's just halfway house, but I don't know. Do something for them so that when they do do go, they're not on the streets, left alone. Not everybody has the family behind them to back them up, like Ian had. And a lot of people don't have the family behind them, but they got nowhere to go. And the only thing they do know is prison. You know, they're probably happy to go back there sometimes, you know, and I'm sure if that's right. But, you know, at least it's structured. They don't have to fend for themselves, trying to get an apartment, trying to get a driver's license, trying to get on with their life. You know, and... Uh, so uh, definitely they could help uh, try and get some kind of a program that can reintegrate into society. But also society's got to be forgiven. They've got to forgive people, you know, for what, for the for the crimes if they just did a jail time and just give them a chance. Give yeah, them but a job. Plus, plus they have um, parole officers. But the only the only thing the parole officer does is you know um, if if they've been using drugs or whatever, drug test them make sure they're staying out of the trouble, blah, 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 blah. But they don't do anything to help them, you know, help them, you know, go here, maybe you could find a job here. They need to have a better system. They need not just to be looking at them, make sure they're not getting into trouble. They need a system where these people can go and say, you know, I need help with this or I need help with that. They, but there's nowhere out there mm-hmm. if they don't have family for these people to go. We don't think there is anywhere. Maybe there is, but we don't know of it anywhere. You're just speaking in your experience, so if you guys say there isn't, then you're probably right, because <laughs> honestly, the rest yeah. of the people that we've interviewed, too, they said, like, there isn't much help out there either, and it, it gets even, like, if you're, like, a minority and everything, it gets even worse, because, like, they target you even more and cut you That's off right. yeah. more. One woman, yeah. um, like, an African-American woman, she was saying how, like, when she got out, she was on her own and she had to go back to crime to feed her family because she had no other options. Like she couldn't get a job because she has a criminal record already. So it was like, yeah, options, but yeah, and, that, yeah, yeah. and that's tough for people like that. Like that people, I mean, Ian, he was on, on his own. He was lucky in that sense. He didn't have to worry about kids or 
you know, uh, how to how to um, feed them and everything, or a place to stay, because he knew he always knew we were there. But they're definitely they're branded for life, you know. That's what they, that's what they, you know they come out of jail. They're branded for life, no matter what they're in for. Yeah. But the other thing too, Kayla, is that uh, before because we had because we lived in Ireland and then we were over, we lived we moved to Vancouver from there mm-hmm. for Victoria. We we flew to Montreal uh, when Montreal when he was in jail there, and we spent four days with him in the uh, in a little place in the jail. And we thought that really helped us because we hadn't seen him for four or five years, I think, did we? Probably yeah. six years. So uh, we spent the four days on a visitation there, and you know we ordered food, he ordered movies, we had a little apartment inside the jail, and uh, we found that really helped us to. Um, and it broke the ice, right, for for him and for us, because uh, it just helped. We just we kind of reignited our our um, good vibes about him and the relationship. And everything. Yeah, so something like that really helps. We thought um, if something can be done like that, that we get the family member back involved, because maybe people are afraid to see the people come out of jail. So maybe if they had a chance to see him before they got out and say, oh, you know. They changed, they're good. You know, I'm looking forward to them getting out. It might help. Mm-hmm. Like just being supportive and just like, like you said, like maybe going and seeing them and living in their experience and stepping in their shoes for a second and even just going and being there with them helps them feel like normal too. Because, like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, because I'm sure a lot of them must feel forgotten. Yeah, you know they're in jail and and they and their only family is whoever they have in jail with them. But you know, I mean, obviously, like I said, we phone all the time, and then we we did the visit there, and uh, it was uh, we just and found her really helped her a lot because she was half afraid when they would be getting out and stuff, and you know, because we hadn't seen her for so long and stuff. Oh, you know. And we, you know, jail maybe harms a lot of people. Well, the Ian didn't. It didn't happen. I mean, he was always a great kid and uh, a great. He loved his family, so that was good. I remember the one time we went to Joyceville to meet him, and it was a, we were sitting outside, and there was a lot of lifers around there. It was a more me and Anne and Ian and about seven or eight more one there. Yeah. It was like one of those day visits, and uh, yeah. so we were sitting outside with him. And uh, all these lifers were saying how, you know, they were praising us, how we were standing by Ian. And, uh, you know, they were basically saying to Ian, you know, you're lucky you got your family behind you because that's the most important thing. And, uh, and, you know, I think maybe it made him realize more that he needs his family behind him and uh, he appreciated us. Mm. From what I remember, that was like a main priority for him. He didn't. Yeah, and that was one thing with his drug use. He was, I mean, he was just so ashamed of his drug use and he was ashamed of the fact that he couldn't give them up. Mm. That, he, you know, he had tried and, and, and he couldn't. And I think it's, he was very, very ashamed. I mean, he kept it for us, from us for, I think, about a year until and Stephanie knew when, and she said, you're going to have to tell mom and dad. So he did, but he was very, very ashamed of it. And I think that's, in a lot of ways, why he never went for help as such, because he was just ashamed of it. He thought it was a weakness in him or, you know, that he couldn't, you know, he managed to be able to come out of prison and and get his life together and get a job and get involved in in different things. And he was happy with that, but he just, his drug use was a, 
is a sore point with him. For people with addictions, why, why do you think they feel this shame or like what, what sort of things do you think what? they're scared of? Um, because I think people look at them as if they're no good. Oh, you know, um, you know, if, if you say to most people, uh, maybe not now, but maybe about, you know, oh, the drug use in Vancouver and the, the pandemic and people say, well, they're all the people living on the streets, blah, 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 blah. But these are people that have jobs. They have some people have families. They have lives. And this is just one part of their life. And, uh, and it makes it just makes them feel inadequate and um, like losers because they can't get get away from drugs. But I mean, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, drugs are worse, and especially the type of drugs that they're taking. Mm-hmm. Stephanie said Ian did crack and stuff, and she said that psychologically that went in that was into the brain, and it was extremely hard to give it up. Like we've learned a lot about yeah. drugs from Stephanie because she. You know, in order to understand Ian's problem, she went to, she has friends in a roller derby that are drug counsellors. She went to different, she went to different meetings and everything. And she'd say to me, you know, Ian, we could go to this meeting on Wednesday night if you'd go. And, oh, I'm not ready yet. Like, he just never felt ready. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, you know, the, the terrible thing about him dying was he was looking forward to getting into his 40s and hoping that he could, because he did say to me one time, you know, your brain goes through this thing and every so much, after so many years of doing drugs, you just don't want to do them anymore. And I think he was kind of hoping for that himself. Yeah. But, you know, as I said, with the pandemic and the bad drugs out there, it just, he didn't, he didn't live long enough. Mm. Um, uh, when you were speaking about how Stephanie attended the meetings, I, I thought to ask, like, how important is rehabilitation to you when it comes to speaking about like alternatives to incarceration or something else other than t- putting people in jail? Like, do you think we should rehabilitate them instead? Oh, I definitely think so. There should be something out there to rehabilitate, especially if they've gone in there. Um, I think a lot of the stuff Ian did, um, especially the last time he was put in, was 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 when he was high, extremely high on drugs. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think a lot of the stuff he did um, was when he was on drugs. So I think really there should have been some kind of a program when he got out. In actual fact, that's a good answer question because there should be some kind of a program if they've had problems with drugs. Mm-hmm. There should be places that they they should be made go to these um, meetings or whatever, like an alcoholic, right? Yeah. It, it might help them, they might, you know, I, I, I don't know, but, I, but, there, but there isn't anything out there. I mean, to get into any of these drug treatment programs is very, very hard to get into them anyway. There's so many people waiting. Yeah, and, and then with the pandemic, everything shut down. There, there are no programs, really. That's right. And Ian actually did start seeing somebody, um, a drug counselor that he did like. And... Um, and he had come off them at that time. That was how long before? A few months? Maybe a year? A year before. A year before. And he had come off them. He says, I'm trying and I'm seeing someone. And we were... That's what you said. It was once a week. And then we, we were very happy about that. But then when the pandemic started, they closed all these programs down. So he had nobody to talk to. Nobody. And he really liked this. There was a woman and he really, really liked her. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to you know, do. because a lot of these people, if they go to these counselors, they have to, they have to feel comfortable in their presence, right? Yeah. 
And um, I think she he did with her, and you know she said you know she was trying to tell him you know you need to get into a program and help yourself, and, and like she was kind of gearing him towards that. But he just, as I said, everything closed down with the pandemic. I think the pandemic has caused so many problems for people. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. Families and drugs, and I mean they say more people are drinking at home. Like the sales and alcohol has gone sky high since the pandemic, so. And you know, it's anybody with any kind of a addiction. addiction. I mean, not even, I mean, some people like to drink. They don't have an addiction. They just like a few drinks. But I think everybody's gotten a lot worse that way since the pandemic hit. And you see, they're always going on about, oh, how so many died from the pandemic, dying for this. But what about all the people that have died from overdoses? I know. There's not many much conversation on that. That's, that's honestly why we wanted to do this part of the reason, just to start a conversation on things that aren't being talked about things that are too taboo in society to speak on like people who have been incarcerated that are experiencing issues like issues like i don't know yeah stephanie stephanie will be good to talk to without well, actually kelly you're going to call her tomorrow but she's really good because she she's done a lot of background work down with, uh, with the drugs and the crime and everything else so yeah that'd be good yeah. and bc i mean i will have to say bc is is very good in that sense they're really trying but I mean, I don't see any other provinces trying. No, there's nothing. They don't talk about that at all out here. Like in Hamilton, we, there's nothing. <laughs> if if you could change the narrative on incarcerated people, what would you want to say or do? Or like change how people view them? What would you say? Um, I think that would be a very difficult thing for, for people <laughs> to change the narrative, see how they think about incarcerated people because they think, you know, once they get, once they, you know, they get in trouble, they just think, oh, and and especially if they've been in um, numerous times, I think people don't think well about them. I think most people don't. Why? Yeah, Maybe don't. education, you know, why do these people get into trouble? Yeah. I'd say through education, basically, mm-hmm. is, um, is the only way that you can... Um, that you can change people's uh, minds about it, especially, especially, you know, people that have been the victims of crime. Yeah. That would be very difficult uh, for people. They would never understand that. Yeah, because they're like on the other side. So from their perspective, like the stigmas and the, the, the things that people who have been incarcerated face are like justified because they, they've been victimized, but I just- Yeah. But, you know, Ian was out five and a half years. And I think at that stage of the game, you'd say, you know, five and a half years. He would have been six years in July, and he died in May. Um, I think, you know, he should have been left alone. The cops shouldn't have really been harassing him. He hadn't been in any trouble. He kept his nose clean. He had a job. He was, you know, um, living by himself, dealing with everyday life. And... um, you know, he had he did his probation for two years, never never a problem there. So you know, um, I think police in general should be re-educated on how to treat people, mm-hmm. especially people with criminal records, because they they don't seem to care. They don't care how they treat people, and we see that from all the stuff that goes on with Black Lives Matter and all on all the shootings. And mm-hmm. I think the police need to be re-educated. To be quite honest. I agree. No, I agree. You're right. They. Defund the police. And then they think, you know, oh, like um, when Ian when Ian got in trouble in Hampton a few times, a girl I a girl that I worked with, 
her husband was um, one of the supervisors in Barton Street Jail. Mm-hmm. And um, he got to know me through, through her and, and also as a family. And Laura said that, he said to her one time, he says, you know, I've always thought that people in here come from the scum of the earth and bad, bad families and everything else, he says. I've met Ian's family, he says, and they're nothing like that, he said. So in actual fact, that changes my perspective about a lot of people that are in jail. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole point of it. People look at them, because you serve time in jail, they think you are a scum or a low life or a, just, you know, no, no society. Well, you're as good as anybody else, you're a human being. And you are, and you deserve a chance. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to get your life back, and 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 you do good. Um, I think that you deserve a chance, but a lot of people don't give give a chance, and especially the police, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people do deserve a chance. It's it's awful that like once you're out of jail, you're you're basically in jail again when you get out because you're set by yeah. certain rules and people are judging you for your past and just everything. Like, but I agree, they do they do deserve a chance, and they're they're valuable yeah. members of society, just like everybody else. They have skills that could could help society like it doesn't make sense to block somebody from getting a job because of their past when their their skill level is like just yeah, they should be given that. a chance you know yeah. okay, you know even employers they should give them a chance see how they do maybe for three months and another six months mm-hmm. and then a year and i mean if they're okay then that should be fine but they shouldn't be penalized um because they have a record i mean they, i'd say a lot of people that get out, they really want to change their lives, but they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, when Ian was in and out of, of prison for years, like it, it was it was hard on us as a family. But when he did get out, um, you know, uh, almost six years ago, um, it was lovely having him back. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always a kind and gen- gentle person where his family were concerned. And um, it was really nice having him back. And I really really loved his company. Yeah, I did too. I liked having him around. But we, we'll we see him again. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Only when we go from this world. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll all go together so we can meet him all at once. <laughs> anyway, okay, Kayla, well, listen, thanks for calling. And uh, you take care of yourself and good luck with the rest of your project. Thank you. But the, the, the one thing... Uh, the one thing that's come out of his death, Kayla, I will have to say, is be real, re, reunited with you. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to reunited. And getting to, nice getting to know you again. I remember you as a as a little kid, and I was always trying to get a hug off you, but you wouldn't give me one. <laughs> I, I was so shy. I was literally like, I can understand Ian from that perspective because I I hated people. I was so scared of everybody. Just I couldn't. Yeah, I didn't get away the other way in the same way. He was a hugger that he used to always give us hugs. Well, yeah, he, when he was older, yeah, yeah. But I mean, not when, when he was younger. It's okay. When I come yeah, in, so, I'll give you all the hugs you missed. <laughs> from okay, when I- all right. <laughs> okay, you take care of yourself. You guys too. Okay, talk to you no. again. Okay, okay, let's see. Have a good day. Talk to you later. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Good afternoon, for us. I Bye. 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 Thank you everyone for listening to Collect Calls, CPEP's podcast. Please be aware of the counseling resources in the description. 
We would like to credit Aaron from CPEP, Philip Primo from Carlton's podcast, Deborah Connors, the professor from sociology class, and Jacqueline Tompolsky, the TA and group leader. All of these people have helped our team and podcast greatly. Please listen to our other episodes to hear from other formerly incarcerated individuals and their family members. Our episodes are unique and give people a chance to voice their experiences and opinions. For more information about CPEP, please look at the links in the description.